Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 67, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? A film by Mike Nichols from 1966, based off the Edward Albee play of the same name. I gotta be honest, I don't think I'd ever seen this movie. Is this the first one that one of us hasn't seen up to this point? We made it. I, I hadn't seen Yankee Doodle Dandy, I don't think. Okay. I think yeah, I think that's the only one besides this. Are you are you intimately familiar with this movie? No, no. I think this is the second time I'd ever seen it. Hardly hardly intimate, okay. but it's certainly not one I'm super familiar with. It just it feels a little more like an outlier, especially because it a it wasn't on the original list, and b it's pretty damn deep for not being on the original list you know yeah which is interesting i i was looking at that i tried to formulate some theories it must have something to do with there must have been groundswell of like why the fuck is this movie not on here but like i I couldn't figure out pattern wise why this thing uh catapulted onto the list so far up do you have any any theories i mean watching it again it does feel kind of important like it does feel like this torrid romance between these two iconic figures playing itself out in this sort of like meta textual way on screen feels like something mm-hmm. that is significant you know i, I, yeah, was, I was sort of I like suppose. i was kind of like looking down the list and looking at all the various stage musical adaptations that ended up on the list but you don't find many dramatic stage plays adapted with the exception of you know your your one flow over the cuckoo's nest or your um Streetcar Named Desire, which I think this has a lot of similarities to. Other than that, there's not that many stage-to-screen adaptations on this list, right? I mean, this is, this is in a, in a lot of ways, this is kind of like, you know, significant placeholder for that kind of adaptation. Yeah, in fact, if you look over the history of film, there, I mean, there aren't too many of these, like, legendary stage plays that become legendary movies. Yeah. You know, Ca- Casablanca and Amadeus are, are technically, you know, stage-to-screen adaptations, but I'm, I, I don't think they were big plays. They just sort of used them as the source material, right? I don't think Casablanca was even performed. I think it was written as a play, and, and maybe it's okay. maybe it's been performed since Casablanca came out, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was performed before they made the movie. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know? But uh, but yeah, it seems like musicals just kind of like lend themselves a little more to these big splashy, you know, silver screen adaptations. Yeah, because I mean, because they can be more cinematic, sure. right? And and plays themselves, like you're just going to have two hours of people talking, and that's really hard to pull off, both uh, visually and 
you know, cinematically or whatever. I'd say it would fall very comfortably into uh, one of your favorite terms, high degree of difficulty in that regard. And perhaps <laughs> that's why this movie is so significant because it manages to nail something that is actually pretty damn hard to do, pretty damn hard to make cinematic. And the fact that these characters are pretty unlikable all the way through from, from the get-go. This is sort of a vitriolic, angry movie. Perhaps that's why it, it is deemed so important. In fact... I think it, it, it broke down some barriers in terms of language um, in, in the 60s as well. So, I mean, it, it's got, like you said, the metatextual Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor romance playing out on screen. It's, it's got the states of screen adaptation. It's got this this language barrier that it bursts through. And it's just a incredibly well done adaptation. So all those things put together, I mean, it makes sense that it's on the list. It's kind of baffling that it wouldn't be on the original list, but uh, I guess we have to chalk that up to some random mystery. It's also significant because it was Mike Nichols' directorial debut, right? Yeah. A year, a year later, he wins his Oscar for The Graduate, I think. And I think a lot of people mistakenly think that that was his directorial debut just because that was such a watershed film. And it was that sure. was just such a game changer. But but really, a, a year before, he directed this film, and it's strange that he doesn't kind of get the kudos I think he deserves for bringing this to the screen. I mean, don't get me wrong, The Graduate is a classic as well, and it's obviously on this list much higher. But I really think he deserves a lot of the credit here for why this thing works in spite of itself. From the research that I've done, having never actually seen the play, not only is it, you know, mm-hmm. four characters for a three-hour-plus stage play, on the stage, it all just takes place inside the house and in the backyard. They never actually leave the house, so... I mean, not that they go yeah. that much further in the movie, but Nichols still finds ways to make this all incredibly dynamic, which is pretty impressive considering that he comes from the stage, you know? It's not like he was a, you know, photographer, you know, like a photographer like Stanley Kubrick or something. I mean, he he comes from stand-up comedy and doing all of his uh, stage stuff with Elaine May. So he obviously knew how to yeah. stage a play. There's just no reason that he would have been the guy to transition to the screen, but he does it seamlessly. Like, what an incredible debut. However, you would think that someone who is known as, like, the, the biggest stage director of his time or the, the stage wunderkind or whatever, what, would have the ability to to stage a play in a way that made it more visually appealing, right? Like that that would be why he was famous you know, on Broadway, right? Okay. So he yeah. probably had some some of these things, you know, in his arsenal to begin with. Think about Mike Nichols, like this has to be up there with the greatest top 5 greatest one-two punches to begin your film career ever, right? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, no no sophomore slump for this guy. I mean, just like looking through Mike Nichols career it's interesting how often he kind of goes back to adapting plays you know how often he Mm -hmm. goes back to the the well as it were and he's one of these guys who i think realizes that's one of his greatest you know and most unique strengths so the ability to do that with biloxi blues the birdcage birdcage yeah yeah uh of course his angels in america hbo adaptation is legendary and then closer uh, closer yeah that was my that was the last one because this this really to me, feels very, very similar to Closer. I mean, Closer takes place over the course of years um, mm-hmm. as opposed to over the course of hours, but uh, this does feel a lot... Like, Closer feels, to me, like it's written by someone who was an Edward Albee uh, acolyte, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's two couples just being mean to each other for two hours. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a foursome, and so the dynamic is very, very similar to this. This is a... Like I said, it, this is movie's all dialogue, and it, it, it relies on the script entirely. Uh, before we get into the 
performances, which which I think deserve equal credit for for the success of this film. You know, even with the directing and writing. You mentioned that the stage play was over three hours, and I was wondering what this Ernest Lehman uh, screenwriting credit was all about. Because reading about the play and reading about the adaptation, it seems that the dialogue is basically unchanged from the Albie play. This is one of the most unique screenwriting credits ever. In that, I guess. It's just editing. He just he gets the screenplay credit for taking outlines to make it a two-hour movie instead of a three-hour stage play. Well, it makes you wonder why they didn't just have Albie adapt it, or if they even asked him to do it and he turned it down. It seems weird. I mean, Ernest Lehman is a legend. You know, he wrote co-wrote yeah. Sabrina, The King and I, Sweet Smell of Success, West Side Story, North by Northwest, Sound of Music, Hello Dolly, uh, or you know, co-wrote many of them. And he's one of the producers on this film, so maybe it was the sort of situation where he where like there was some sort of guild situation where Edward Albee couldn't get credit for writing it. You know, yeah, I can do some more research into that. But it is significant that, like you said, Ernest Lehman was very, very upfront with the fact that he revered this play and is like, I'm not changing a word of this thing. Albie yeah. does seem, in my sort of cursory research, like a fairly uh, pretentious fellow. So it could have just been... <laughs> on moral grounds in some way where he just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, he's a Broadway legend. He, you know, kind of the Eugene O'Neill of his generation, I suppose. And he's, Mm -hmm. you know, revered for good reason. To me, you know, the little, the few, you know, theater history courses I've taken over the years, his name always comes up. And like the one thing he's always associated with is booze. Like that's his thing. He writes plays about people who are talking while drinking. It's kind of his stock and trade. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, this might be the ultimate talking while drinking movie <laughs> it's crazy you watch this movie like the, the, how drunk these people had to have been by the end these characters by the end of the movie like they're just constantly pounding just yeah. straight up brandy and whiskey throughout the film and uh you know speaking of the metatextual part of this like yeah. this that is sort of richard burton's life as well especially in this time and, and going forward this is his last great role right uh, i mean yeah it might be his last like I- iconic role I suppose yeah and and yeah like you said he got nominated for Equus or whatever Equus sure sure but I mean he, you know like famous alcoholic of course died I believe of cirrhosis of the liver and while I don't have any proof that they were actually drinking while shooting apparently Burton and Taylor had it in their contracts that they didn't have to be on set until 10 a.m. every morning and you have to presume that part <laughs> of that was because they were likely going to be hung over most of the days they were shooting I, I, you get the impression that they're really living with these characters and obviously married at the time of the shooting so i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these kinds of interactions were also going on offset including having drunken arguments with each other yeah hey it's method acting man <laughs> exactly although they were you know they're married for another eight years after this and then they got divorced and then they immediately got remarried so clearly they, they figured out a way to make it work <laughs> they'd, they'd only been married for a couple years and they got married in 1964 Four, and this is 66, right? They'd only been married for a couple yeah. of years when they made this film. It was Elizabeth Taylor's fifth marriage, and it was Burton's second. And yeah, like I said, they would they would remain married uh, for another eight years before their first divorce, and then they were married for a couple more years, and then they mm-hmm. got divorced again. It's crazy to think, because the, the first 10 minutes of this movie, or first 15 minutes of this movie, are are awesome, because it's just those two, and you're, you're getting the sense for what exactly their relationship is like, and despite the, the, the nastiness and how awful they are to each other, you can feel the genuine warmth and love, the, the seeds of that in there. Like, it, it's there somewhere, and, and, and you can see how they, they have made it work, dis, despite how vitriolic they, they become. It's just a credit to the writing and the acting that, 
you know, with the first 20 minutes of this movie through sort of non-expository dialogue and just getting to know all four characters that we have these extremely well-rounded people in front of us. It sets the stage so wonderfully for, for what goes on the, the rest of the movie. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, I guess, somewhat significant. Edward Albee was a homosexual, and he yep. s- seems to he seems to have a, like, a preternatural understanding of the, you know, heterosexual marriage because he, you know, addresses it in so many of his plays, but maybe more than anything, it's just... A, like sort of an understanding of humanity, you know, what, <laughs> yeah. what make what makes a great playwright, but also uh, sure. a, a, a very a scary and kind of disturbing fascination and understanding with how people humanity's capacity to abuse psychologically abuse fellow humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there are ways of, of of abusing people that like supersede any sort of like physical abuse that perhaps psychological abuse is is even mm-hmm. more uh, damaging ultimately. Yeah, and I, I was reading that his he had a big preoccupation with the. The state of the American dream and how it was all a facade, how it was all bullshit. Um, and this is a perfect encapsulation of that because, you know, on the outside looking in, this should be a happy marriage with two successful people, well-off people with, you know, seemingly low-stress lives. And yet it's just a firestorm behind the scenes. Introducing the the young couple played by young George Siegel and uh, Sandy Dennis, who I believe was a pretty big Broadway star. She was. I think this is only her second film, and uh, yeah, and, and she, she won an Oscar. For both it. the women won the Oscar Oscars for it. Yeah, yeah. Deserved. It's crazy that Richard Burton didn't win an Oscar for this role. It's hard to understate how fucking amazing he is here. Um, a lot of that, like we said, might be sort of playing himself and his <laughs> what's going on in his own life. But yeah, holy shit, just the, the, the gravitas he possesses and everything and then just his, his playful meanness throughout is uh, is pretty astonishing it's it's a four-hander i suppose and and i guess you could say it's about george and martha but ultimately george is the protagonist of this film right i mean at the end of the day albie is really writing for him and he gets the quote-unquote last yeah. laugh right you get the sense that elizabeth taylor martha's character is pretty uh, this is how she's been for a while and mm-hmm. sort of the the inflection point here is 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 George not having any more of it like he's sort of over the edge and said fuck it I'm gonna lay it all on the table and so he's the one that is sort of changing in this movie probably more so than Martha he's got the bigger arc and that and that's yeah and that's fun to see in regards to how it plays off of uh, George Siegel, his character, and then the young couple, and how he sort of sees himself in the young couple, and alludes to what might be in the offing for them. And I, I, I really, my favorite scenes in the movie are the early scenes between Richard Burton and George Siegel. There's just the two of them. I just like the sort of power plays that are going on. The fact yeah. that Burton thinks he can sort of run over George Siegel, but he's actually sort of a, a worthy intellectual and emotional foe for him, and that sort of impresses Richard Burton in a way but also scares him in a way just a lot of complex psychological stuff going on here interpersonally it's interesting to watch because you just don't see this sort of wordplay and and like I said the psychological things going on in, in movies these days and it really takes a play-bound type of movie or type of thing to to get this deep into people's psyches, right? Especially the beginning, these scenes are, every scene is like a 10, 15-minute pure dialogue scene, and it's, uh, and obviously you have to go 
it keeps going throughout the entire movie. But it, it once you get into the rhythm of it, it's not like the movie is a uh, it's not a chore, right? Like some of these movies can get a little boring and become a little much, but this movie stays exciting and and especially the beginning. It's really funny until the humor becomes more tragic. But at the beginning, especially, I was laughing out loud quite a bit by myself. It's very, very funny and is obviously dialogue forward. Maybe maybe that is part of the reason that it's very difficult to adapt these kinds of things. Because obviously you're going to do something on the stage. It's going to be just by definition very dialogue heavy. And audiences oftentimes bristle at that a little bit. And I think we need to give writers who can actually do that well a lot of credit for being Mm -hmm. able to make that kind of stuff engaging because i can speak from experience it's very easy to write lots of dialogue it's very difficult to write dialogue that people actually (laughs) care about because it's personally it's it's my favorite thing as well like when i write it's the thing that i'm most excited about writing and it's the thing that i want to get back to and the biggest criticisms i get when i get notes on things i've written is that just like you know it's too talky there's just too too many conversations it's too dialogue obsessed i was listening to an interview on Mark Maron's podcast recently where he was interviewing Aaron Sorkin. Fascinating interview. Sorkin's really, really candid. And he's talking about the fact that dialogue is what got him interested in being a playwright in the first place. And when he sits down to write, he only writes plot so that he can get himself to the next opportunity to write dialogue. Like that's ultimately his <laughs> his sure. his goal, his endgame. And and that's that's not a surprise. You you sit down and watch his stuff, listen to his stuff, and <laughs> clearly that's what gets him excited. But he's managed to find yeah. a way to espouse in such a manner that uh it doesn't feel realistic, but it still feels lyrical, right? Yeah. Give credit to Tommy Schlamy for inventing the uh, the walk and talk in circles, <laughs> talk. you know, on the West Wing and, and Sports Night to, to give a venue for the for the dialogue. Well, we're going to talk about Patty, Patty Chayefsky here in a couple of films and and his masterpiece and how that may have actually sort of given rise to someone like Aaron Sorkin. But I do think that Sorkin and Albie do have a lot in common in terms of how they're able to make not just the kind of like rat-a-tat back and forth stuff work, but how just a clear mm-hmm. a clear love of language and and being able to set this in an academic setting where you ba- where you have professorial types regardless of the fact that they're all mm-hmm. getting blotto drunk they're still pretty damn erudite throughout the entire thing right speaking of dialogue you've written stuff i've written stuff and writing dialogue is fun but to keep long you know chunks of dialogue interesting you do have to have conflict and you do have to have people being like i said mean to each other in in ways and that can be really hard when yeah. you're writing it like it, it's hard to make your characters be awful to each other, but you need that tension. This movie, everything feels like it's just resting on a pinpoint at all times. Like it, it could all go go to shit on the, on the drop of a hat, and it often does. Um, but to keep that tightrope walk going for two hours is is incredibly impressive, and, and you know that's what make this makes this movie work. Well, plus they keep giving he keeps giving these characters opportunities to get out of this. Like, even from the very beginning, yeah. they're, they're like, she's like, you know, there's some people coming over. He's like, oh, really? Do we have, it's like two o'clock in the morning, dude. And then when they show up, the first thing Sandy Dennis says is maybe it's too late. Maybe we shouldn't be here. Like, there's an opportunity for none of this to happen. They could just be like, yeah, it's a little late. It's time to go home. And then throughout, <laughs> like, you know, maybe we should go. And maybe you guys are having your own thing. And all right, we're going to drive you home. But then they never actually get home. Like, he keeps giving them these opportunities to get out. Like, we can actually escape this thing. It doesn't have to come to a head. He just, like, keeps subverting these very easy opportunities. And I was 
was thinking about, you know, we've all had those kind of bad nights where we were maybe a little overserved, and you wake up the next morning, you're just like, ah, oh, you know, I should have just gone home, or I should have just done this, or I should have had another glass of water. I, you think about all the ways that, you know, things you could have done to not be feeling so shitty and hungover the next day. Throughout this yeah. film, there's just always these opportunities, like, you, you could have escaped. You could have just gone to bed, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, nope, we're going to take this thing all the way till dawn, and it's all going to melt down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, Matt, what's your what's your favorite scene in the movie? This is a little bit of a cliche because I feel like it's the scene they always show when they do you know greatest hits reels of this. But the umbrella shotgun is pretty amazing, and I'm sure it's probably pretty amazing on stage as well. And it's just it's a moment where Nichols really gets to kind of dig into style for a second and really show us that. You know, he's not just a dramatist. He's he's also maybe a visual stylist as well. And just everybody's reaction and the crazy snap zooms and Sandy Dennis's uh, ear shattering shriek. It just it, it kind of establishes a precedent for like how dark we're willing to go with this thing and how absurd it might get. Right. Because it purposefully setting you up to think that this is the real thing and even in the music and everything like we're only about 20 minutes into the movie mm-hmm. but it's like oh yeah he might just shoot her in the back of the head right now right you know it, it's meant to symbolize that he's just he's had enough of her yeah. and, and his whole situation his life and his fuse has been lit it's not that that's untrue it's true he just doesn't have the balls to uh, actually kill her and that's sort of a, a character trait he's he's had for however many years in sure. the past um, like I said I, I think my favorite scenes are are the the first long uh, George Siegel, Richard Burton scene where he keeps mistaking biology for history and it's just a lot of fun back and forth between the two while being dangerous and uncomfortable as well. I was going to say, I like the little exchange where George Siegel's looking at the painting and Burton's fucking with him. He's like, do you think it has a quiet intensity? Oh, do you think it has a certain certain noisy, relaxed quality? How about a quietly noisy, relaxed intensity? <laughs> That's just good, solid you know, twisty uh, Albie yeah. stuff right there. All right. Well, I mean, we talked about its placement on the list. Do you think it deserves to be on the top 100? Do you think it deserves to be where it is? Yeah, I think it's a significant film. I think it's a little bit high probably, but you know, we always get into this and unless we actually crunch the numbers on these things, we can't, you know, I need to discipline myself from just saying like everything deserves to be on the list, but is too high. Like if I say that about every movie then yeah. we're going to have a very uh, crowded, uh, you know, bottom 50. I, I, sure. I think it's a significant film. I think it's, it's beautifully made, beautifully acted, beautifully written, obviously sort of unprecedented but I don't know this seems pretty high for such a relatively sort of dark and obscure film yeah this feels like it should be in the the 80s I'm gonna say it should be like 87 but uh, <laughs> just arbitrarily this does seem like looking at the list so far this is like one of the most different movies one of the most unique movies on the list uh, which which I think gives it credence to uh, you know being on the list itself I, I can often find these types of really dialogue heavy play like movies get a little old you know an hour in to get a little tiresome but this movie keeps up the momentum throughout and keeps throwing sort of you know emotional daggers at you so I, I was really impressed by this seeing it for the first time and uh, you know I'll, I'll probably need some more time to fully digest it and, and see where it goes but I upon first viewing I, I have no issue with it being on the list at all it's, it's significant and it's pretty damn effective feels uh pretty vital i would say and and dramatically potent mm-hmm. couple little things here huge hit <laughs> weirdly um yeah well maybe it's not that weird the play was a hit also but 40 million dollars and a seven million dollar budget that's pretty impressive it's crazy that it was a seven million dollar budget like that seems that seems like a very high budget for that time for what this movie is doesn't it pretty high I, i'm presuming a lot of, i'm just presuming taylor and burton probably commanded pretty big numbers in those days fair and fair. uh 
13 Oscar nominations, which is the most mm-hmm. Oscars. It, it was nominated for every single award it was eligible for, which is pretty bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Pretty crazy. And uh, as we said, both Elizabeth Taylor and Sandy Dennis won. Uh, Sandy Dennis is so wonderful in this movie. She's she's kind of the pace car, right? Because she's the one who can't hold her yeah. liquor. She keeps running to the bathroom to vomit. I mean, she's, she's the drunkest mm-hmm. of the four of them because she's the smallest. Mm-hmm. And she plays drunk in such an interesting way like she's very very funny and she's clearly having a hard time keeping it together but she's not a slurred mess you know she still mm-hmm. manages to get her point across but she's kind of like the little bit of levity that exists but she's also tragic at the same time i don't know i think she's dwarfed because she's you know and when people talk about this movie they rarely talk about her because she's existing alongside these three bigger movie stars especially the two huge ones at the top but i think she's pretty fantastic in this in the way that she manages to hold her own the character itself is uh you know at the beginning you think she's just this sort of I don't know maybe arm candy doesn't have much to her but she slowly reveals her edge and her sort of weirdness throughout. I love at the uh, at the bar where they're dancing she just starts yelling violence. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> whatever it is, which is absolutely hilarious. So yeah, yeah, she, she, she's great. She was a big surprise. George Siegel, it's kind of. I mean, did he have a big movie career after after this? Yeah, I mean, he's always been around. He's always worked for a certain generation. I think mm-hmm. he'll always be, you know, the dad from Just Shoot Me. Well, I remember my mom loving Just Shoot Me because she used to love George Siegel. Probably a little bit of a heartthrob back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting that the film plays him that way. Like it plays him as kind of the sex symbol like he he becomes kind of like trophy for elizabeth taylor right so it's 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 funny knowing you know looking at george siegel now he's in stuff like the goldbergs these days that's the new show that he's on recently and it's just funny to think that there was a time in his youth where he probably was like a little bit of a sex symbol like they keep referring to like how fit he is and how he's in good shape and how he works out and how he's blonde and all this stuff so yeah just looking back through his filmography you know like he's always worked on interesting stuff and he's always worked with good directors like cable guy flirting with disaster to die for the Look Who's Talking series. Anyway, he's, he's just, I don't know, he's an interesting guy. And he, like you said, he starts off as just a pretty face, but then he very clearly becomes an, an adversary for Richard Burton. That dynamic is really interesting. I love when they're out in the garden when, when he's when he's on the swing and he's telling him the story about, you know, going to the gin mill and stuff. That's a really mm-hmm. phenomenal little uh, sidebar the movie goes off on. Any final thoughts before we uh, close up shop here, Matt? It's a, it's a little bit of a tough movie to recommend because it's a little bit long and it's pretty dark and it can be a little uncomfortable, but I think it's definitely worth it if you're willing to make the investment. Uh, there's a lot to appreciate and there's a lot of impressive things going on in this movie. Yes, 100% agree. All right, well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies, Top 100 AFI countdown see you later matt later hey everybody matt here with a quick friendly and humble request as we round the corner into our ninth year on the way to a decade of we like movies and closing in on 300 episodes we thought it might be a good time to talk about donations if you felt so inclined perhaps consider visiting the donation page at www.welikemovies.com and help us out with a small ovation anything you'd be willing to contribute would help us offset the cost of seeing upwards of 100 movies in theaters per year as well as the expense of maintaining the site we're not looking to get rich off this podcast and we certainly don't do it for the money but any assistance you'd be willing to provide certainly lessens the financial strain of producing the content we're committed to providing you with. Thank you so much for your continued patronage. 2019 is going to be our biggest year yet, and we're so excited to have you with us. Thanks again.